Welcome to the teaching ministry of Christ Church of the Valley, featuring lead pastor Kevin Carlson. Today, we invite you to open your heart and your mind to what God is saying to you through His Word. We're glad you decided to listen in with us. Here now is Pastor Kevin. I remember my first computer that I had at home, my first personal computer, an IBM 386 that hooked up to AOL over a telephone line. Those of you old enough will remember that sound your computer made when you boot it up, you know? And back then, if you were searching for something on the web, you would go to Yahoo. Yahoo was the place to go to search for things, and it just owned the search engine market, though we didn't even call it that back then. But that's not the case today. Uh, Yahoo is a struggling company today. I was just reading yesterday uh, about the value of the company, and it has a very rare uh, attribute to it that if you take all the stuff that Yahoo owns, uh, it's worth this much money over in this pile, and then you take what the company is valued up at, it's $8 billion less. So what that tells us is the business is worth a negative $8 billion. You get more money out of just cutting up the parts than you would out of operating the business. It's really fallen on hard times, and now Google just rules the search engine world. It has a market capitalization in February. It passed Apple as the most viable company in the world. I want to show you two shots here. The first is for Yahoo's screen today. So this is just a screenshot from my computer. There's a little bar up at the top there where you're supposed to do the searching. And then you got all that other stuff there. You got ads and news articles and stuff on the left and the right and just all sorts of little sub-clicks and this kind of stuff. Compare that to Google's homepage yesterday. Uh, they got their name, but they always do a little funny thing with the animation uh, of the name Google. There's a box where you type in your search, and you can do a search, or you can say, I'm feeling lucky, which is I want just the most popular search to pop up. And that is it. It's really simple and straightforward. Well, Yahoo has embraced complexity. The marketplace has spoken. When it comes to search engines, simple is better than complicated. But it's, it's true in life, but it's also true in church as well. That simple is better than complicated. Churches are really good at making simple things complicated. I, want to read, I always went on the, the web looking for mission statements from churches, and this was the first one that popped up, just typing in church mission statements. This is from Seeds of Hope, a church in a suburb of Pittsburgh, and this is their mission statement they put on the web. The mission of Seeds of Hope is to sow the seeds of hope, Jesus Christ, in the hearts of many in Bloomfield, Pittsburgh, and to the ends of the earth. Our context is the emerging postmodern culture. Postmoderns have rejected the trinity of modernism, reason, nature, and progress, and the church that is built on it. Lacking a meta-narrative, postmoderns turn to a sort of primitive tribalism, or bury their pain in technology, well, I'm not done yet, or consumerism. Our mission involves creating a church that can be a safe gathering place for postmodern people to come experience the grace and forgiveness of God, a family of believers where they can find healing for the things that have hurt and wounded their souls, and where they can belong to believe. That is, where they can be nurtured and discipled into faith in the one true God and in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Now, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood pile's wet, right? I mean, come on. Come on there. Did you understand that? Do you have any idea what I was saying? I like the meta narrative. That was a nice word in there. Is there a snowball's chance in Yuma that you could remember that, even after repeated study? Not at all. Super complicated, super long, and at the end of reading it, you're more confused than when you started it. All right? Let's compare that to our church's mission statement, which you see on the wall as you come into the auditorium, which is what? Inviting you to a better 
Bing, right there, inviting you to a better life. I'm sort of disappointed that only staff came up with that one there. Uh, so you see it on the wall there. That's why we put it on the wall as you come in the auditorium, because that's what we're all about at CCV, is to invite you to a better life. One, two, three, four, five, six words. Six words, real simple, real clear, not complicated at all. But you wonder, maybe complicated is more biblical. Maybe that's deeper. Maybe the, the Seeds of Hope guys are just a really deeper church and we're just a bunch of superficial people uh, out here in California. Um, surely something as important as the organization that Jesus created to carry his word, his mission, his gospel to the entire world would be complicated, right? It'd be deep, it'd be, it'd be heavy. What I want us to do in this series is we're going to look at what the church was like in its earliest days. The book of Acts is a recorded history of the church in sort of its early days, the beta days, when it was first started. So it was closest, I think, in nature to what Jesus intended. It didn't have time to experience a lot of mission creep. And so if we look at what the church was like in its early days in Acts 1 and 2, we can get a feel uh, for how simple the church was. Because there is tremendous power in simplicity. Now, what we have here in Acts chapter 1 is that the, uh, they have to replace Judas as one of the 12 apostles. Jesus had 12 guys that were uh, his closest friends and advisors, and their job was to carry uh, the message of the gospel to all, all the world. So a really super important job, right? This is the most important job in the church. Uh, and so I'm wondering, if that's, if that's an important job, surely it's going to be a complicated process, right? So we see the process in its entirety in Acts chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, open up to Acts 1. Uh, if you have your smartphone, uh, down, make sure you have version downloaded on there, and you can follow along in there. There's a, an events tab. If you look on the events part, you'll see CF CCV on there. You can click on that and follow along. You get all the screenshots of the, of the slides, but you'll also see on there our daily reading plan. Every message series, I pick a daily reading plan, and so there's one that's designed to go along with this one. It's from John Maxwell. It's a leadership development uh, reading plan that goes for 30 days. It's great. I just started it today. I encourage you to join in here and get in God's word every day so you can find that on the events part and follow along. So Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 say, as the apostles talking, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So those two sentences are it. That's the whole smack there. And this passage is going to tell us three really important things about how church should be organized and how our lives should be organized. The first is this, that the important doesn't need to be complicated. The important doesn't need to be complicated. The requirements and job description are all summed up in two sentences here, in these two verses there. Uh, what are they looking for? A replacement for Judas. That's the job they're trying to fill, a replacement for Judas, whoever uh, can take Judas's place. What's the job requirements to get this job? What do you have to have? Well, somebody who was with Jesus for his entire ministry, from his baptism to his ascension. That's the requirement. They need to be a witness to that entire period. And, and what are they going to do? What's their job description to be a witness of the resurrection? So a replacement for Judas, who was with Jesus for his entire ministry, who serves as a witness to his resurrection. That's it. That's the entire job description and requirements for being an apostle. Now, let's say you want to apply for a federal job as the assistant postal sorter class two. Uh, how complicated is that process? 
Uh, some of you are laughing already. You know government too well. All right, so I went on the, the main website for the government that shows uh, government employees and, and their policies and, and their, how you apply for the job, and it has seven major headings. This website does seven major headings. And so I clicked on one of the headings, and it had 22 subheadings, 22 subheadings. And each of those, uh, those subheadings had sub-subheadings, 143 in all. So we had 143 sub-subheadings of just one section of seven of the entire website. So there'd be over a thousand different uh, sections of this website, each of which had a manual that you could download that was many pages long. Thousands and thousands of pages if you want to be an assistant postal clerk class two. Whereas if you want to be an apostle of Jesus, it's two sentences. The big idea here for this whole series is that simple is better than complicated. Jesus knew it. God knows it. The government does not. We need to if we want to live the better life. We want to embrace the power of simplicity. And you know what makes it so simple? It's the clarity. It's the clarity about what it is they're trying to do, the job requirements, the job description. It's crystal clear. There's no fuzziness here. There's no like, well, I think it's sort of what they're looking for is maybe this kind of thing or that kind of thing. You know exactly what it is. You could fit it all on a post-it note. Not hundreds and hundreds of pages, but a post-it note. I remember being in a creative meeting in, uh, in Mesa, my home church, Central, where I served on the worship uh, department. And one of our jobs was to create creative programming that would support the message. And our pastor uh, also worked as the uh, president of a university here in California. So he'd go back and forth, commute back and forth. So uh, we didn't get to meet with him during the week. So he would give us an outline uh, of his message. And from that, we would design songs and dramas and videos and all that kind of stuff to go along and support the message. And so he had one message, I think it was out of Philippians, and it was talking about you know, how to face life's pressures or something like that. And we're reading the outline, and we say, okay, so dealing with pressure. And so we came up with this drama about this couple, and the, one of them was really under pressure at work. It was all snippy and this kind of stuff. And they were not dealing with pressure really well, and it was hurting the family. And then after that poignant drama, we did the Billy Joel song, Pressure. You know, it's just a kind of song. Pressure! Just, I mean, that was a great package. Then the preacher got up to preach, and he preached an entirely unrelated message that had nothing to do with facing the pressures of everyday life. We missed it. We missed what the theme of the message was. We created a great worship service to support a message that did not exist. We just whiffed it. And the reason was, is because it wasn't clear. We didn't have clarity. What is this, what's the theme of the day? What's this message really all about? We just had to guess. And the notes were generic enough that we guessed wrong. And, and doing so caused a service to whiffle. Well, what happens when you get it wrong in life? When you're really not sure and clear about what it's all about and what you're supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be doing it. What about in a church, when a church doesn't have clarity? When you're not really sure what the church is all about? Remember that mission statement I read up top? Could you understand what that church was all about for me in those paragraphs? What happens when a church lacks clarity, when people are a little fuzzy about it? You know, there, there's a couple of reasons why we lack clarity in life. It is number one is we don't understand the answer to the questions, what am I trying to do and how am I trying to do it? We just don't have an answer for that. We haven't thought about it. Uh, they're simple questions, but we don't have an answer for it. So we lack clarity in life because we don't know what we're trying to do. Secondly, we know what we're trying to do, but we want to avoid conflict. We don't want to have clarity because when you're in a large group of people, 
you have group A that thinks you're trying to do this and group B that thinks you're trying to do that. And if you're clear, someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. Someone's going to be right and someone's going to be wrong. And we don't like to hurt feelings. So what we want is for everybody to think they're right. You think you're right, you think you're right, and we just won't clarify it uh, to avoid that kind of thing. And we'll just hope that it all sort of works out. That if we all do good stuff, at the end of the day, good stuff will happen and no one's feelings will get hurt. Do you know what it is you're trying to accomplish and accomplish in life? Do you have any idea? Can you verbalize it in some clear, concise, easy to understand way? One of the things that makes life with Jesus the better life is the clarity of it, how simple it is. Uh, what does it mean to be a church that embraces the simplicity that leads to clarity? I gave our elders and our staff a book called Simple Church, which is all about the power of simplicity. And so I want to give you a definition of what it means to be a simple church. Here's a simple church definition. If you're a church that embraces simplicity, that embraces clarity, uh, this is what you are. And this is from the book. It says this, a congregation designed around a straightforward and strategic process that moves people through the stages of spiritual growth. That's what it means to be a simple church. That, that sentence there is packed with meaning. Let's break it down a little bit. First of all, it's a congregation that's designed it's designed. There's a plan to it. You look at this church and you see, all right, I see the plan behind this. I see what the church is trying to accomplish. I can look at their publications. I can look at their website. I can look at their ministries, their staff, and I understand what, what the plan is. There's a plan here, and I can discern it from looking at the finished product. That's not always the way it works, is it? That there's a plan from top to bottom. There's a thing in San Jose called the Winchester House. Anybody ever visited the Winchester House? All right, in San Jose, you visited that thing. I've never heard of it until I looked it up on the web. Uh, it was made by the widow of the guy uh, that, was in, that made the Winchester rifle, the rifle that won the West. And uh, depending on who you talked to, she was either guilty, felt guilty about all the people that the gun had killed, or she was... Uh, uh, freaked out uh, over the death of her husband and her child. And, but for whatever the uh, reason was, she inherited this eight-room house in San Jose, and she got a lot of money uh, from her husband's business. And so she hired a team of, of builders, of, of carpenters, uh, who she ended up employing for 38 years. And these carpenters were working day and night, 24 hours a day in shifts. So they worked on this house for 38 years. Went from eight rooms to 160 rooms. Now, what's funny about this house is you go on the tour and it takes over two hours to tour the 110 of the 160 rooms that are in this house because it's just bizarre. You got staircases that go nowhere, doors that open into nothing. You've got, you know, you go up one staircase and then down another and you end up right where you started. Uh, I love this. There's a, the most expensive window in the house, which costs $15 in the 1800s, which is a lot of money. Uh, this beautiful ornate window that she ordered from Tiffany's in New York is installed, the idea was the sun would shine through this window and it would make a rainbow of color inside the house. So that's, this, this window's like a giant prism. The only problem is she put it on a north-facing wall that never saw the sun and then built a bunch of rooms over it. So it never sees the light of day anyway. It's just a mess. You go from room to room, you go, you know, I'd love to see the floor plan of this place. How do you design? Well, the answer was there was no floor plan. There was no design. What she did is she would have a seance every night she wanted the house to be complicated so she could confuse the evil spirits that were following her. And so she'd have secret passages and stuff to lose the spirits. Then she'd have a seance and her dead husband would tell her what to build next. 
And so she'd meet with her foreman in the morning and say, okay, now we're going to add this room here or this wall there. And they'd work there until she had another seance. And then she'd come back with, with a little more. And so over the years, she just added on bit by bit without any kind of master plan until you end up with this mess that it is today. Well, it's sort of really fun to tour, really interesting to tour, but I wouldn't want to live in a house like that. Now, unfortunately, a lot of churches are like that house. They just sort of add on year by year, bit by bit, a little program here, a little staff there, a little activity here, something on the calendar here. And at the end of the day, it's this big blob without any kind of master plan behind it. You couldn't look at the church and say, all right, by looking at the calendar and the staff and the programs, I can see the design here. This was built on purpose. We put more effort into designing a home or a car than we do into the church of Jesus Christ. We just sort of wing it as we go and add stuff as we go along until there is no discernible plan at all. You should be able to tell what the design of the church is by just looking at it. So the congregation designed around a straightforward process, straightforward. This is a process that's simple, simple, it's easy. It's post-it note kind of stuff, not government website kind of stuff. I went on a real big church in Southern California uh, that I really admire. And I was just curious about the number of ministries they have. And I, and I stopped counting at 236 different ministries. And I'm thinking, if I'm new to that church, and I'm wondering, well, what am I supposed to do? What's my next step? It's like, well, we have 236 possible next steps for you. Pick one. Uh, you can tell sort of the spaghetti on the wall approach. You throw it on the wall, and you see what sticks after the fact there. Or like a Charlie Brown cartoon, um, Charlie Brown was shooting an arrow at a wall. And then he'd go up to wherever the arrow stuck in random parts of the wall, and he'd draw a bullseye around where the arrow hit. So I hit, I hit the bullseye every time. And churches do that all the time. They design a bunch of stuff, they hope somebody goes, and then they pretend like they meant to do that. Yeah, yeah, we're hitting the bullseye every time because we have all these different arrows all over the wall. Well, if a church is going to be simple and have the power of clarity, it needs to be straightforward. As a new person, I can come in and say, all right, what's my next step? Well, it's this. What's my next step after that? Well, it's this. Simple, straightforward, easy to comprehend and understand. It's straightforward and it's also strategic. It's a simple, straightforward, and strategic process. That means it's purposeful. Purposeful. It's designed to do something. And you can tell what the design is just by looking at it. You know, it's like a factory. A factory is designed to build a specific thing. Let's say it's Volkswagen's. You go in there and then raw materials go in, maybe steel and glass and aluminum and rubber and all these other parts. They go in one side and then out the other side should come Volkswagens. There's, there's, there's a, something strategic going on here. I'm, I'm designing Volkswagens. I'm not just putting in raw materials and out the other end comes a vacuum sometimes and a toaster sometimes and a broom sometimes and a Volkswagen sometimes and a Sherman tank other times. It doesn't work that way, does it? Factories are designed purposefully to create something specific. Well, is your life purposeful? Is there some design behind it? Or are you just sort of doing stuff, hoping that something sticks? Is our church purposeful? Can you tell by looking at it what it is we're trying to accomplish? Jesus gave the church marching orders. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Simple, easy to understand. But do you see that revealed in churches, programs, and ministries? They look strategic. It's also an ongoing, it's a strategic process. It's a process. It's ongoing. So a factory, you go in the factory, and it's not just a one-stop shop, right? 
You don't just send all the raw materials in and it all pulls in a big pile and you push the magic button and insta Volkswagen, right? You start with the frame and then you add on the engine and the seats and this kind of stuff and then you add on the panels and, and then the engine and the, you know, you build it piece by piece. And you start at one end of the assembly line where it's very primitive looking and, and unassembled and then it slowly comes together as you work the line until the end of the line, you've got a finished product there. It's an ongoing kind of deal from start to finish. It's a process. Well, if we're going to make disciples, we have to understand what's our process? What's the beginning step of disciple making? What do you do next and next? And what's the finished product look like? Do you even have a clarity of, of agreement on what does it mean to be a mature believer in Christ? Well, I think it means this. I think it means that. If you can't even define what it means to be mature, how do you know when you've built what it is you're trying to build? That's like one person thinking you're supposed to be building a broom and another thinks you're supposed to be building a toaster. How do you know if the factory is doing its job when Volkswagens are coming out? You gotta understand what it is you're trying to do, what the process is, and then to move people. That's our next step. It's a dynamic process that moves people through the stages of spiritual growth. It moves them. You know what's dynamic? School. You start at the first grade and you finish at the 12th grade. There are 12 steps I go through year by year. And when I'm done with the first grade, where do I go if I pass? I go to the second grade, unless you're my mother who's really smart and she skipped two grades. Otherwise, you go from second to third to fourth to fifth. You, there's, just a, there's just a process there, and it's really easy to understand. Little kids, when they start school, they don't think, I'm going to high school next year. You know, they, they're going to go to the second grade and the third grade. They know what the, the stages are, and you move people through these stages from first to second to third to fourth to fifth. School's not working if all the kids just sit there at first grade and never move to second grade. Nor is school working if they go from first to 11th to second to fifth and they just jump all over the place. No, there's a, there's a process that's dynamic, that's designed to move people from beginning to end. Well, we put all this thought and energy and money into designing a school system to move people through the stages of education, but do we put that same kind of energy and thought into moving people through the stages of spiritual growth? Or we just jump around from program to program hoping that at the end of the day, something sticks and some sort of spiritual growth has taken place. It moves people through the stages of spiritual growth. It's clear. The process is clear. First, second, third, fourth, fifth. How clear is that? How simple is that? Easy to understand, easy to grasp. But do we have that same kind of clarity when it comes to spiritual growth? What are the stages of spiritual growth? How do I start? How do I finish? What does maturity look like? A simple church has stages of growth and you move people from stage to stage to stage. And so you can identify, this is where I am. I'm at stage two. I'm at stage four. I'm at stage one. Whatever it is, you can quickly and easily identify where you are. Or it's like, well, I'm somewhere in there. I'm not at the beginning and I'm not at the end. I'm somewhere in the middle. And if that's the best we can do, no wonder that we don't achieve everything we want to achieve in terms of making disciples. There's a parable that Jesus told. I love this parable, the parable of the seeds. It's the one where he scatters, the farmer scatters the seeds on rocky soil, smooth, hard soil, weedy soil, and good soil. And Jesus is telling this story, and you get the rocky soil, and it grows up and withers, and the weedy soil grows up and chokes, and the hard soil never gets a root in the first place, just gets eaten up by the birds. And at the end of each of those sections, he's describing the farmer's labor. He says, plant this seed, it gets eaten up by birds or, or choked, and he says the same thing at the end of each section. He says, and so... They never grow to maturity. 
Three out of four seeds that this farmer plants in this story end up immature. They don't grow into maturity. And then Jesus sort of sticks in the knife and twists it, and he says, the, the seed is God's word, and the soil is your heart's. And so some people are hard-hearted, and God's word just bounces off. Some accept God's word, but it's only sort of shallow and superficial, and the first time they go and gets rough, they bail. Others, they accept God's word, and they accept everything else, just one amongst many, and it gets choked out by the other things in life. Only one out of four hearts, really, accept God's word, and, and, it, redu- and it produces some sort of harvest greater than what was sown. So three out of four people, Jesus say, never grow to maturity. And I think one of the reasons we see that is because of lack of clarity. Uh, people don't understand what it means to be mature and how you get it, let alone have the willingness and the, and the discipline to work the process there. It's hard enough convincing people to swim upstream in life, to say, when the world goes right, I'm going to go left. When there's a broad, easy path that leads to destruction, I'm going to take the narrow, windy road that leads to heaven. That's a difficult enough plan. But then imagine when the path is unmarked or worse yet, obscured, so you can't even see it. and You don't know where it is or what it looks like. We're making it harder rather than easier for people to, to work their way into spiritual maturity. So to achieve maximum clarity as a church, there's got to be a direct connection between what we're trying to do, our purpose, and how we're trying to do it, our process. If you want maximum simplicity and clarity, in fact, our purpose drives our process. Our process is our purpose. Our purpose is our process. So if I understand my purpose, I understand my process. Here at CCB, we we exist to invite you to a better life. It's right there on the wall as you come in. But lest there be a lack of clarity over, well, what is a better life? What does a better life look like? As you're leaving above those doors, you see three statements. Life with God, life with others, and life with purpose. Let me start with life with God. Uh, Life with God uh, is all about our worship service. It starts right here. That's, our, that's stage one. Uh, we want to submit our lives in worship to God. Worship means putting God first. That's what that means. I'm going to put God first. And so here we want to do it through our worship service. That wants to be the, the first step of our process to help people live life with God. Now, there's three things I want you to get out of our worship service, three areas where I want you to be worshiping that God teaches us about. Uh, the first is public worship. You know, the average person that considers themselves a regular churchgoer only goes three times every two months. They miss more Sundays than they they make. And so it's a rare thing now for people to develop the habit of weekly worship. It says in Hebrews, don't give up meeting uh, together as so many do, but let us encourage each other. Gather together to encourage each other. It's hard enough swimming upstream. You need the encouragement weekly to keep you on track and to give you that little boost there. So we want to encourage people to develop the habit of regular weekly attendance at our worship services. Not just that occasional attendance, not just Easter and and Christmas, but regular weekly worship attendance to to give God the first day of every week. All right? But then the second aspect of worship is to give God the first hour of every day. I give him the first day of the week. I want to give him the first hour every day in private worship. I've got public worship. I'm going to attend a worship service. I've got private worship. I'm going to read my Bible each and every day and give God that first hour of every day, that first minute of every day. Uh, the, the reading plans I've picked for you don't nowhere near an hour, more like a minute. Really simple to do. The idea is, before I get involved in any, everything else in life, I'm going to spend some time reading God's Word. So what God thinks about life is sort of floating around in my head all day rather than what the world thinks about life. So if I can give Him the first minute of every day, I've gone a long way toward giving my day to God. 
So I want to give the first day of the week to God in worship. Then I want to give the first hour of the day uh, to God in terms of, of my daily Bible reading. And then I want to give God the first portion of my income. That's the third aspect of, of public worship, the first portion of my income through, through giving. Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. You can't do it. You got to pick one or the other. And so you can't worship God without giving him the first portion of your finances. If God is the boss of your life in every area but your money, he's not the boss of your life. Money is. So Jesus, you got to pick who you're going to serve, me or money. Which is it going to be? So in order to be a worshiper, I've got to give him the first portion of my income. I, I give to God before I give to myself or my landlord or my bills, this kind of stuff. So living life with God means worshiping publicly, privately, and financially. All three of those things. If I'm doing those three things, I'm really worshiping God. If I'm only doing one or two of them, I'm not fully worshiping God in my life. So life with God, that's your first step. Uh, and when we do the tool we do, the part of the process is in our worship service. The second sort of stage is life with others. And the primary tool that we use for this is our small groups. Our small groups. There are 52 commands in the New Testament that you cannot do by yourself. Love one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Confess your sins one to another and on and on and on, 52 times. That means there are 52 ways I can't be obedient to God by myself. I need to be in a group with other people in order to fully live out the scriptures. So a small group is where I do those one another's, where I live out my faith in a real practical way by loving other people. So life with God is our worship service. Life with others are small groups. Life with purpose is ministry teams. Ministry teams, this is being involved in, in, in an active service, a regular active service. Ministry teams aren't about consuming, they're about producing. See, a ministry can be something you go to and I consume the Bible study, I listen to the content, I consume, but a ministry team is where you produce. I make something, I do something, I serve someone in a way that benefits somebody else other than me. It says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We want to do the same thing. So what this means is there's, there's five things that we want you to do that we've identified as markers of spiritual maturity. And just ask yourself, where am I? Do I attend worship every week or am I really sporadic? That's step one. Am I worshiping privately by reading my Bible? Or do I never open my Bible except on Sunday when, when the pastor's preaching? I just look that up on the screen there. Am I doing that? Am I worshiping through my finances? Do I give God the first portion of my income or the last, if any, is left over? Am I a worshiper? One, two, three, four. Am I involved in a small group? Am I living out those one another's every week? Or am I just sort of going it on my own? Number five, am I serving on a ministry team? Am I doing something to give back to the world and to give back to the community and to serve others rather than being served myself? That's what real maturity looks like. When I do all five of these things, I'm being spiritually mature. And if I've done all five of these things, then my next step is to share it with somebody else. Start all over again by bringing someone else along and share what I have with somebody else. Our takeaway today is to commit today to take my next step. Whether it's step one, two, three, four, or five, I want to identify which one I need to do next and take that next step today. Take it today. Commit today that I'm going to grow spiritually by starting the process and taking whatever step is lacking in my life. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, you've heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will pass them on to others. That's maturity. 
I grow in Christ by doing these steps and then I pass it on to somebody else who grows in Christ and they pass it on to somebody else. That is the key to revolution, my friends. That is the key to utterly transforming our town is when you have people that grow in their faith and they bring someone else along with them to share their faith with somebody else, it creates a self-reinforcing cycle that just explodes throughout a town. It takes spiritually mature people to change the world. You want to make a difference in your life. Do you want your life to matter? Then embrace the power of clarity. Know what it is God wants you to do and commit today to doing it. Because simple is better than complicated. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Christ Church of the Valley, which meets every Sunday at 9 and 1030 a.m., at 13701 West Stockdale Highway in Bakersfield, California. For more information, visit our website at ccvbak.com.